This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos discusses her book, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. She talks about her time serving in the Trump administration and offers her thoughts on education reforms to fix schools. I think in hindsight, I would have been a lot more um, assertive about speaking up during the time in which I was waiting for the uh, confirmation hearing. And I had very little support in pushing back against the vitriol. She's interviewed by Jeb Bush, former governor of Florida. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Betsy, it's such a joy to be with you. Congratulations on the book, uh, Hostages No More, The Fight for Education Freedom and the Future of the American Child. Uh, let's start with the uh, title of the book. How did you come up with the name Hostages No More? Well, first, Jeb, uh, great to be with you as well. Thanks, uh, thanks for doing this. And um, the title is a provocative one, and it's meant to be. Hostages No More is a direct reference to a quote made by Horace Mann, commonly considered the father of our education system. Uh, about 175 years ago, he said that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. And I think the last two years have really given families across the country a front row seat into how many ways their children really have been held hostage to a system that for too many of them is simply not working. And so this is a book about what we do to fix American education. And, uh, and that is, uh, that's the reason for the title and uh, the, the subtitle about American uh, education freedom, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Absolutely. We're definitely going to talk about it. But before that, um, you talk about your childhood in Holland, Michigan. Tell us about growing up in Holland, about your family. Um, were you inspired by... Uh, a mentor or teachers that, that got you on your, um, on your life's journey? Sure. So I was born and raised in Holland, Michigan. Uh, both my parents are you know, children of immigrant families from the Netherlands and um, started out with uh, virtually nothing. My parents uh, mortgaged everything when I was just a young child to, for my dad to start a business. He's, he was an engineer and he had a better way of doing things and so um, they mortgaged everything and raised some money from family and friends and started a business when I was eight years, seven years old. Um, I remember helping my dad paint the first building and then working um, throughout the years on the factory line. Uh, he, one of the products that he developed and created was the lighted sun visor for cars. And I was uh, involved as a middle schooler on that first production line packing, inspecting, and shipping those sun visors, and then later working third shift in the factory. Um, it was a great experience. They were very hardworking and, uh, and very entrepreneurial and always gave my siblings and me 
the, uh, the messages that we could do and be anything that we wanted to become. And, um, and they really, really provided um, amazing role models for me, as did a number of teachers I had growing up. My mom, first of all, was a teacher, a first grade teacher. And then I uh, recall my second grade teacher, Mrs. Walcott, who regularly held up my uh, cursive penmanship papers because I, was a, I am a left-handed individual. And, um, and it was tough for me to learn cursive, but she always, she always encouraged me. So I remember that about her. And I also remember um, my high school government teacher, Mr. Pothoven, who really helped instill in me a love for politics and policy and, uh, and really American government. You know, you're, in the book you mentioned that your dad uh, passed away suddenly and uh, the business was sold and your mom, uh, tell the story that your mom uh, decided to uh, make sure that all the employees were taken care of. I thought that was a uniquely American um, exceptional kind of uh, act, and uh, it's probably worth knowing. Well, my mom and dad um, really were examples throughout their... My mom's still living. She's uh, just about 90, and, uh, and, and both of them were really committed to giving back, and they instilled in all of my siblings and me a love of and for philanthropy of giving, and they gave in many different ways, but... Uh, what you've referenced after the sale of the company, my mom took a significant portion of the proceeds and had it given out to all of the all of the employees of the company in the form of a, a unexpected and unanticipated bonus. It's really been interesting to see the um, results of all of the opportunities that um, you know many of the individuals who were in leadership positions there they actually went out and started businesses of their own in West Michigan. And it's really been exciting to see how some of the uh, proceeds that they received in the form of bonuses have really seeded additional opportunities and all kinds of new uh, businesses and growth opportunities for others in West Michigan. That's fantastic. So let's, uh, you dedicate the book to your, your husband, Dick, who's a phenomenal guy. Um, can we dig a little deeper and can you give us a, a rundown on the rest of your family and grandchildren, sure. which uh, at least in my particular life is kind of the most important part of family these days? Exactly. Well, uh, we have four children, all uh, grown and with families of their own. We now have 10 grandchildren and three step-grandchildren. So it's, life is very full. The newest ones are two months and six months, and it's, uh, it's just a, a blessing to have the, uh, the voices of youth and the energy of youth around very regularly. I'm looking forward to seeing almost all of them this weekend. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So you and I share a common passion for education reform, education freedom, um, school choice, parental choice. Um, We've, we've had this shared passion for, gosh, at least 30 years. What, what, what drove you to make this your life's calling as an adult? You've, you're clearly one of the leaders in the country, uh, and you've stuck with this uh, through thick and thin over many, many years. Well, it, it really originated when uh, our oldest son, Rick, who's now 40, was starting kindergarten. And Dick and I knew we were going to be able to have our children go to school wherever we thought was best for them. So I really uh, researched around the area to find the best setting for him. And um, in the process of doing that, I discovered this 
amazing little Christian school in the heart of Grand Rapids, really serving the community around it, and uh, began to get involved there as a volunteer. And the more I volunteered, the more I realized that for every child and family that was represented at the school, there were probably 10 or 20 others in the community that would have loved to have that opportunity for their kids, but couldn't because they couldn't afford the tuition. The families in the school couldn't afford the tuition, and the school has to regularly still raise 90% of the operating funds outside of, uh, outside of the, you know, those who attend the school from benefactors in the community. And the more I got involved, the more I realized that the way we, uh, the way we fund or the way we provide for education in, uh, in, in Michigan at the time uh, was not fair. It was not right that I could make those decisions and choices to have my child in a faith-based school, but those in the, that community, if they couldn't get into that little Potter's House school, didn't have that option. So I began working um, in a... a 501c3 nonprofit type uh, efforts to make changes. And, um, and Jeb, you'll recall early on as well, we thought that through either emotional arguments, stories of people whose lives were impacted, or logical arguments, legal arguments, we could make uh, the case and, and compel policy change. But it became clear very quickly that... Um, the policies were very often controlled by politics. And so that led me into more efforts around the political piece of it that has, uh, has then, I, I then started working, um, you know, nationwide in targeted states that we really tried to make the policy, help, help um, the policy changes come about through getting involved in the politics. So that's really an important point, which is that your motivation was driven by your family and uh, the lack of uh, and the, just the moral implications of some children being able to have parents that could choose a school and others not. Um, but you melded your civic and political um, involvement into uh, this policy advocacy. Tell, tell us a little bit about that because it, I, don't know if, I don't know if people know how active you have been historically in both the policy realm as well as the political realm. You talk about it a lot sure. in the book. Sure. Well, uh, some people would think that my very first um, foray into anything regarding education was when I went to Washington <laughs> to be secretary. But uh, that it actually started, as I said, it started um, you know, 35 years ago when Rick was going to enter kindergarten. And um, Dick and I established uh, very soon after that a scholarship organization that helps help students, help families, in first in West Michigan, and then we spread it to all of Michigan um, to help families access the education they wanted for their children. And, um, and then we, in 2000, tried to uh, change. We, we were involved with an effort, leading an effort to change Michigan's constitution, uh, which has a very, very high Blaine Amendment, which, by the way, the Supreme Court case yesterday has a significant impact on. But... Um, we, we tried to change Michigan's constitution to allow for kids in failing schools and failing school districts to access other choices. That, did not, that was not successful in 2000. We may have been a little premature, but uh, the energy of those who supported it was, uh, was very you know, distinct. And I, I said, we, we can't let this energy go away. We have to help harness it and do something good with it and help 
uh, you know, do make some changes that we need. And so Michigan had a, uh, a cap on the number of charter schools that you could have established in Michigan. That was the only way to get that legislation passed a few years earlier. And when that uh, cap was quickly met, there was little political will to change that cap at the time. So we started focusing on legislators who either were supportive of or not supportive of lifting that cap and began political efforts to ensure that um, enough legislators were elected to office that would actually support expanding the opportunities for charter schools. So that was really sort of the first effort of bringing the, uh, the political piece into the policy piece. And because of the success we had, we then moved on, and, and I was at the time uh, serving on a couple of different national boards around a- advocating for school choice, but we didn't have that political piece in, in, the, in the mix or in the effort. Um, and so that began uh, a move toward that, and, um, and since uh, organizations have started doing that political advocacy work, we've had a lot more success in helping families have that power to find their right fit for their kids' education. You know, a lot of people um, probably that are watching uh, our conversation here probably think, look, good ideas, policy that makes sense, you know, it, it, just, it just happens. But um, what you've learned firsthand over many years, similar to, to my experience, is that government-run, politicized, unionized bureaucracies just don't go quietly in the night. No matter how logical your arguments are, you have to win politically. Yeah. And um, I think that's an important lesson to, uh, to people that are, you know, want to make sure that their child gets a, the highest quality education. They have to be engaged civically and politically, correct? Right, Absolutely. And um, I think it's particularly important today as more families have, have had a front row seat to their children's education the last couple of years. And for a whole host of reasons, many of them are very disappointed with what they have experienced, and rightfully so. And so we see you know, parents at school board meetings asking questions, and, uh, and we see you know, school board membership changing as a result. And I would urge and expand that, you know, that, uh, that request to get involved to making sure you're paying attention to who you're voting for, for state legislators and for um, members of Congress, because these are individuals who will ultimately decide policy around education now and in the future. And where we want more opportunities, we need to be supporting those individuals who are going to actually support that themselves. Yep. So let's talk about uh, your, the nom- your nomination to be Secretary of Education in the confirmation process. As a friend uh, watching, uh, not, not near the uh, area code 202, but down here in Miami, it was painful to watch it um, t- because of the vitriol and the ugliness what was what was your and I know you're tough. I know you're really tough, but it was it was hard to watch, to be honest with you. And can you can you share some experiences in that uh, during that time? And were there any lessons learned? Well, I obviously went into the whole process not knowing exactly what to expect because I had never studied the process before, having never anticipated uh, the opportunity to serve in a role like that. So I didn't have anything to really compare it to, 
but um, upon reflection and um, and in you know in having lived through the the whole experience, I think in hindsight I would have been a lot more um, assertive about speaking up during the time in which I was waiting for the uh, confirmation hearing. And I had very little support in pushing back against the vitriol. And, um, and I also had a lot of folks, a lot of great folks around me that were trying to help me prepare, but many of them that really didn't know and understand the Department of Education or um, you know, what I might anticipate in terms of subject areas to be addressed in the, in the process. So, you know, in hindsight, I have a lot of great ideas about how to do it differently. But um, I, uh, I did my best getting through. And uh, thankfully, we had uh, Vice President Pence who could cast that tie-breaking vote, which, um, you know, was a historic moment. I don't think uh, there has not been another cabinet member having to be confirmed by uh, a tie-breaking vote of the vice president prior to that. There haven't been many uh, cabinet secretaries that were so unfairly uh, treated as well, and you handled it with a lot of grace. Um, and then the first day uh, that you show up to work was an amazing, in the book, it's an amazing story. Please share that with us. Well, I, I think we're referring to the second day when I went to visit a school in Washington, D.C. No, well, we can talk about that, too. I'm okay. talking about the... the um, the Department of Education has three buildings. What, what oh, I yes. Reading. Yes. And you shook hands with every person in the building? I, I walked through every floor of every building and shook hands with everyone who was there. Now, to be fair, these are very large buildings with lots and lots of workstations. And many of them were populated, and there were a pretty hefty number that weren't. <laughs> but I shook hands with every every single staff member that was there, every single employee, and... Um, introduced myself and then went to the auditorium and, and did a, uh, some brief remarks to the whole group. Um, and that was, that was great. It was fun. Although I did, as I mentioned in the book, I, I did wear heels in that particular case, and it was not a good idea. So, um, so the, the, the second day on, on the job, you go to the school? Is that right? Or second the, first, day, I, second, the day. second day on the job, I went to the... Um, to a, a middle school in, in the district. And uh, we, were, we were very intent on not making it a big deal. We did not inform anyone of the visit. I just wanted to go quietly and uh, meet the students and the teachers and some of the parents. Unfortunately, someone on the other end, on the school end, uh, apparently released the fact that I was going to be there uh, more broadly. And there were many protesters, lots of media, and um, it really, the, the encounter was, was very unpleasant in that I was literally uh, barred from entering the school and, um, you know, it was, was pushed on the stairs and, you know, really sort of physically affront, confronted. And, um, and so we had to leave the school. I had to leave with the, the security person from the Department of Education, drive away, and I, you know, he said, ma'am, I don't think we should go back. And I said, no, we, we have to go back and we need to find a way. And um, so we did. We got into the school and um, I had a great visit. It was a wonderful visit with uh, the, the teachers and meeting a lot of the students and many of the parents who had come. It was a great visit. Uh, but 
the result of that was because of the, um, you know, the way I had been confronted and really physically barred from doing my job, I, I ended up having uh, two days later, this was on a Friday, and on Monday when I returned to work, I, I was now protected by a full 24-7 uh, marshal, U.S. marshal detail. Um, they had done a threat assessment and found many, many viable and alarming threats against me. And so a, as regrettable as that was, I'm very thankful that I had the um, protection of those wonderful men and women. Um, and they really ensured that I could visit and go see places and do things that I needed to do as secretary. Yeah, it, it, this is... Uh these are examples of just the really ugly political culture and culture in general that we we now have where people that you may have a disagreement with are the enemy um, and there's very little effort to try to understand the other side because why would you want to understand the enemy you know it's just and it's it's personal and it's ugly and it's increasingly violent it's so sad to watch Um, so the uh, another part of Washington life uh, is the entrenched nature of the bureaucracy. And you tell two stories in the book that I thought were uh, great examples of this institutionalized entrenchment that exists uh, much more, I think, in D.C. than other like local and state government, I don't think, have the same degree of, uh, of uh, just craziness about protecting um, people that, that um, aren't serving. They're there to you know, make a paycheck and not necessarily... Uh, do their job. So one one story was the story that you talked about about books in the basement and a clo- large closet that you wanted to donate. And the other story, if you could share with us, is the um, the, uh, the receptionists that uh, weren't <laughs> tele receptionists. I'm not yeah. sure that's a that's only a term in the Department of Education apparently. Um, but to share those two stories because I think it sure. does give you a sense of how frustrating it must have been as someone coming with a passionate desire to empower parents was confronted by not just a hyper-politicized environment, but also this bureaucracy. Sure. Yes, the, the, uh, the book story is, um, was a very frustrating one because we, we learned early on that there were literally thousands of books being stored down in a, some storeroom in the basement of the main building of the department. And so we set about to try to get them out of that storeroom so we could actually bring them to schools when I was visiting and anybody else uh, on the team that was was visiting schools. Well, we found out that there was only one key to that storeroom and there was only one individual who had control of that key and he only was in the building very occasionally so we had to figure out actually when he was going to be there. Uh, Got that figured out and then when he went to open the door, he said, but you can't take these books out yourself. You have to get someone from the union staff to come and move them for you. And, um, and so you, I'm not going to allow you to take the books out today. So that set about a whole other process of coordinating the one man with the key, with the union staff that also had their own unique schedule to go and unlock and unload books out of that particular storeroom. Um, just a, an example of inefficiency, bureaucratic processes that n- make no sense at all. And before I tell the receptionist story, there's one other one um, that, it, it, to me, it's just 
appalling that we can and do allow this to happen, because I'm sure it's not unique to the Department of Education. There was one um, individual that I became aware of whose job required her to be on a computer all day long, and it was discovered that she had not logged onto the computer for over two years. And so, and, and yet it was impossible to fire that person. Um, so again, just another example. And then the, the receptionist story, inside the, the uh, end of the building where my office and those on my team, you know, several, probably, there's probably 20-some people that worked on that end of the building. And there, it was a, a reception area that two individuals sat at to receive people coming in to meet with anybody on that end of the building. And um, again, very early on, uh, one morning, my deputy chief of staff went to ask these individuals a question, and neither of them were there. And she was very puzzled by that, rightfully so, and learned that uh, both of the individuals, it was their day to telework. Now, their job was to actually receive people. And so we were all very puzzled as to how and why they could telework in a position like that. Um, and so we, we you know, quickly righted that situation with individuals who were actually going to be there. But uh, again, just another example of, uh, of all of the, um, you know, the impediments and also the bureaucracy that we had to deal with on a regular daily basis. Man, I would have, my blood pressure would have been way too high having to <laughs> experience that. So you, you say uh, in the book that uh, Washington is a lonely place for Federalists. And as a, as a governor, I, I really appreciate that. But tell me what that, what that meant um, and how you used your, your uh, position to try to shift power back to the states. Well, uh, everything we did, everything I, I said, everything we do needs to follow the law first and foremost, but get, devolve as much power away from Washington and away from that department as is possible. And um, and that you know that was uh, that was difficult for even some of our Republican friends on the Hill to understand, because um, you know and, and and I understand the propensity to when you are in uh, in. In a, bill, in a place where you have a, a majority or are able to influence policy, you want to influence it in the direction you, you want to take it. But my uh, contention, with particularly with education, is that this is really primarily the role of the states. And in fact, uh, the Department of Education, in my view, uh, probably should not exist and should never have been created. So everything we did was to really devolve as much power to the states and give them as much latitude around decision-making as, uh, as was allowable by law. It started with the implementation of the Every Student Succeeds Act, which, um, of course, had been... There were all kinds of regulations ready to go. Um, they, they were... I think the law passed assuming that... Uh, that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president and they were going to be able to put add on all of these r rules and regulations. Congress quickly pulled those back, thankfully, but that allowed us to really look at state plans for the Every Student Succeeds Act and then turn them around back to the states as quickly as possible as long as they were following the requirements of the law. 
but like I said, there were a lot of uh, a lot of our you know Republican colleagues who liked to see their own special you know provisions added in and or uh, applied when it worked for their uh, philosophy. Uh, the probably the transcendental, more transformative event of geez, uh, in the last 20 years um, has been the pandemic. You were secretary when um, the pandemic hits. Uh, people are scared. People don't, there was very little information to start with. Tell me what your role was. Um, I know you created a commission, a task force, uh, and, and kind of go through that process of what, what Washington was like uh, dealing with all these unknowns. And then if you could explain to me which states you think have done better than others and why. So, um, yes, obviously in March of 2020, there were a lot more questions than there were answers. And um, what we knew uh, initially was that we could take uh, steps to pause the uh, payments on student loans, which we did immediately, and, um, and then make ourselves available in any way possible to state leaders, knowing that states were going to have to navigate this um, unique to each state. And, uh, and, and as, as it became clearer, as the spring moved on, that, um, you know, kids were not catching this uh, disease and were not spreading it like adults did, that um, the opportunities for getting back into classroom settings were very real and should have happened for most kids, um, if not all. And so we, we tried and did everything we could to support states making that decision and that call. And, um, and you know, when the initial COVID relief package was passed, we got that money um, out to states and available uh, within the, I think, even shorter than the required time period by Congress, which was a, a no small feat. Um, and, and so every, every state and district had the opportunity to access these funds for whatever they needed to make their schools safe and healthy for their kids to be in. But it was just amazing to me how, how, how many did not go about, set about the, the, with the goal of getting kids back in class and in person. And, um, and as that wound on through the summer and there were so many states and large urban areas with no plan for getting kids back into the classroom, um, it, was, it was very concerning. And so we did everything we could to uh, urge and encourage them to do just that and had you know, pledged our support in any way we could give it to ensure that they had the resources they needed. But... Um, it was, you know, it was a very frustrating time in that so many kids were kept out of the classroom for months longer than they ever should have been. And today, we don't even begin to know the scale of impact and harm that has befallen on millions of kids across the country. Um, so on the public health side, uh, we do pretty much know, don't we, that um, this... Uh the effort to shut down schools um, had the, the the public health impacts were actually I think kids probably got sicker at home than they would have in the classroom in, in a you know with schools open but that's now clear right I mean absolutely absolutely going forward and hopefully we learn from that lesson that 
that uh, apart from the obvious uh, need to have school, you know, have kids in school so that moms and dads can work, um, it, it it was uh, there was no health impact for states like Florida and others that right. that stayed open for a longer period of time. Right. Well, and frankly, um, you know, many parents saw charter schools and private faith-based schools opening right back up and serving kids. And so, again, I think this has, the, the pandemic and how the system handled it has really opened a lot more families' eyes to the, the lack of control and the lack of influence they've had. Yeah, so um, you bring up an interesting point. Normally, historically, when there's been a massive disruption, and this certainly was one of those, there's been, come, coming from that, uh, there is a surge of innovation uh, that, you know, propels us forward. Right. And tell, tell us about some of those innovations that took place. You mentioned homeschooling, which grew double-digit across yeah. all racial boundaries, black families, Hispanic families, white families, all had double-digit increases, some more than that. And then private schools did not see a decline, even though par- parents, you know, their pocketbooks were stretched. Charter schools were up. Traditional public school had a decline. So out of that, what are the innovations that you see that, that could be um, more sustainable, that could last for a longer period of time post-pandemic? Well, I think a lot of these uh, experiments out of necessity, some of the little homeschool consortiums where uh, a few families got together and they hired a teacher who was upset with how you know his or her Uh, district was handling the situation. And so they had a teacher for, you know, a handful or 10 or 12 kids um, seeing those kinds of solutions. And for many families that they're working very well, uh, the policy to support that really is around these education savings accounts, which would allow families the greatest flexibility to address the needs of their children based on what they've discovered has worked for them. And those kinds of innovations really need to have room to continue to grow and, uh, and more of them to be established. If, uh, if they're successful for some families, they will certainly be successful for others. Uh, and I think it's actually a great opportunity for teachers as well because, again, I think many teachers were very frustrated with how, um, you know, how their system and how, how the system navigated and handled this and so I think for uh, teachers to have the same sorts of freedom and innovative, creative opportunities themselves uh, is a real, real opportunity and a real bright silver lining from the, the pandemic as well. What do you think of this, the explosion of uh, what they're calling pods? Yeah. As an well, example it, of that, right? It, yes. Uh, pods, micro schools, you know, call them what you want. It's what it amounts to essentially is a, a handful of people getting together saying uh, we're going to learn together. You know, it's, also, it's often uh, multi-age children, you know, multi-level learning and uh, sort of the one-room schoolhouse model again. And, uh, and, and again, because we have so many more tools and so many more resources in terms of, uh, of curriculum and uh, ways to receive and, and, and you know, move through curriculum, many mastery-based programs, which are perfectly suited for kids who uh, don't want to sit and be measured by how much time they sit in their seat, but uh, how, how they progress through concepts. Really, the, the, uh, the Pandora's box has been opened, 
and uh, and now policy has to support families finding those solutions that are working for their children. The the exciting part of this is that this is parent driven. This is yes. This is um, parents now. I guess they were the teachers for months of their kids. Uh, they saw the lack of response to their needs in some districts uh, and got frustrated. And from this, it's been a spark, I guess, to to really uh, have significant parent engagement, which is the way um, education freedom will will you know move forward, right? Exactly. No, exactly. Uh, I think parents have uh, have sensed a um, a a power. They, they they've been awakened to the need for them for them for to be involved in their kids' education in a way that many of them had had uh, not realized before. And in doing so, they've also realized that they really, they really do have uh, an important role to play. And, and importantly, they can figure this out. Um, they, they do have the ability to help make sure their kids are in a place in a way that is, is really engaging them and in a place where they're learning. Absolutely. So um, we, we briefly mentioned the learning losses. I haven't seen any studies research-based kind of uh, data that would suggest there have been learning losses. But anecdotally, uh, it appears to me that the losses are devastating, particularly for younger kids, particularly for the kids that were struggling prior to the pandemic. Yeah. What are, what are the, um, are there, is there data now that's been collected that verifies what I think is likely to be a, a really serious challenge? And B, what are the, what are the recommendations that you, um, uh, believe need to be made. What, what do you recommend that that policymakers and um, schools across the country do to deal with this huge gap that probably is built up? Well, um, the studies that I've seen or the references I've seen have have been mostly anecdotal as well. But um, I know that uh, McKinsey had um, even before we've come completely out of the pandemic had estimated uh, five months to well over a year learning loss, again, depending on how long a child was out of the classroom. And, uh, and, and this is going to be a longitudinal issue, right? There, we're going to have to keep, yep. uh, keep measuring. Uh, I did see, though, that uh, Sweden just released a study earlier this week. Um, they had not, other than the two weeks initially, two or maybe two, maybe two to four weeks initially, had not closed down schools they went immediately back to school, and they have uh, determined no learning loss for students in Sweden. So it's uh, it, it is uh, it's going to be really um, concerning, even more concerning for uh, students in the U.S. that were out for a year or more in many cases. And as we've talked about, the ones that were out of class the longest or out of uh, in class in person learning the longest are the ones who can least afford it, the most vulnerable kids. And, uh, and, you know, in some cases, their families were able to find other options through some of these other creative uh, solutions. But the, the, the point being that uh, only with policies that support education freedom are we really going to see the opportunity for many of these kids to catch up and, and then surpass where they were before. Because going back to and doing the same thing um, you know, is not going to bring about better results for these kids. So you mentioned in the book that um, that that education freedom, parental uh, choice uh, in the pandemic uh, environment, in the post-pandemic environment, has exploded across the country. And you you correctly, I think, I agree with you that 
these are state policy drives this and local implementation is the key. Um, give us a little rundown um, on the states that you're most excited about in terms of transforming the system where parents are really given the power as informed consumers where they get the information and can make choices best for their kids. Well, I always, I always reference Florida, which, of course, you, Jeb, led the way on creating op- options and opportunities and education freedom. And, uh, and thankfully, your successors and uh, successive state legislatures have continued to build on the significant steps you took now more than 20 years ago to provide these opportunities. And I see Florida continuing to push forward on that and to making uh, those options. Uh, you know, I, I, I think, I, I hope that Florida is the first state to offer universal education freedom. Um, time will tell, but uh, I'm also very uh, encouraged by what uh, Governor Ducey and uh, legislators in Arizona have continued to push on and, uh, and same for Indiana. Um, you know, yep. Wisconsin, Ohio have uh, have some signs of uh, real real progress and growth as well. And then, importantly, uh, we've seen this this issue really inform many of the the primary races this year in states where there haven't been programs and where there's been there's been legislation introduced in the past, but there simply hasn't been broad enough support. But this issue has really popped to the top of the list for many states, and uh, importantly so. I think in, in this next year or two, we're going to see some more major gains. I, I, I agree with you, and I think um, if you look at this as um, both of us are kind of veterans in this fight, you know, some states started earlier on the journey, but now many states are um, expanding charter schools, looking at ESAs, uh, aggressively pursuing uh, parental options, and states that 10 years ago would have never considered are, are, are starting to do it. So Exactly. And, well, I think, and I think parents are the ones that made that happen. That's kind of the absolutely. core element of, of the book, that you're, you, you trust parents over bureaucracies, and I wish more people did. Yeah, and I, I have a great optimism also for my home state of Michigan, which is in the middle of... Uh, of, of getting an education savings account, a significant one, established after the governor vetoed the legislation. We have a citizen-led uh, petition initiative to represent that same legislation back to our state legislature. And if, uh, if they successfully pass it again, it will become law without her signature. And this will provide opportunities for tens of thousands of kids in Michigan. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, let's, let's switch to a place where the Department of Education has more of a say, uh, which is higher education. But it has more of a say for a, a, a financial reason, um, not necessarily, well, it's, it's bad policy, which is our student loan program. Right. Um, tell us about where we are with the student loan program. President Biden is talking about um, granting immunity, if you will, for thousands and thousands of, of borrowers. Uh, what's the status of the student loan program, and what would you do uh, if you if you had a magic wand? Um, what would you do differently? Well, um, this is something that I started uh, sounding the alarm on early on in my tenure. Uh, the student loan pro- or the student debt at that point was just shy of 1.5 trillion dollars. 
it's now grown to over $1.7 trillion. And um, it, is, it is just inconceivable to me that we have not addressed the, uh, the fact that federalizing student aid in 2010, uh, supposedly to pay for Obamacare, which it did not do, uh, clearly, um, was, was the start of more runaway costs on the part of, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, tuition increases on the part of higher ed institutions, and more students taking out student debt that, um, for higher, higher degrees. Uh, but where we are now is, you know, President Biden's under tremendous pressure from the far left to forgive all kinds of student debt. Uh, not only is that ill-advised, it's illegal. And, um, and also, even if it, if, if, there, if it was legal to do, it has no merit. Two out of three Americans have not taken out student debt or attended higher education. And so the notion that we would ask two out of three of them to pay for the student debt of those who knowingly made that decision is uh, simply unfair and untenable. Secondly, what about all the students that faithfully have paid down their student loans or whose families saved for their higher education or for the veterans who uh, earned their uh, higher education funds through the GI Bill? Uh, none of, nothing about this is right or fair. And even if you did wave a wand and forgive a bunch of student debt, where would that leave you? It doesn't fix anything. It doesn't change anything. And so uh, Congress and the president really need to go back to the drawing board. And I would argue, wind down the federal student loan program and allow it to go back to the private sector um, as it was before. And, uh, and, and in, in the process of doing that, expect more from institutions on uh, you know, showing how their value really matters to the students they're supposed to be serving. So there's, uh, it seems to me that a bottom-up approach, um, if you phase down or phase out the student loan program, a bottom-up approach could create all sorts of interesting options. I mean, you look at our friend Mitch Daniels, who has completed his tenure at Purdue, a great university. He has not raised tuition for how many years now? Eight? Over, eight, over 10 years, or 10 I'm, years. I'm pretty sure. I mean, his whole time in office. Better outcomes, uh, low costs. Um, states like Tennessee are providing incentives for, uh, for kids on a merit-based basis to, um, to earn credits uh, uh, in a very low-cost way. Florida has very low tuition. It seems like you're you're punishing the people that are doing the innovative work by um, by allowing the federal government's uh, involvement in the student loan program to take away the incentives for innovation. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um, and there is uh, every opportunity to really support a lot of these innovations in um, in meaningful ways that are not going to penalize uh, the innovation and um, and and are not going to keep rewarding those that keep doing the same thing the same way and providing less results for students. So um, the the term wokeness, a term that I didn't know until about four or five years ago, um, is a very uh, interesting topic in our, in our universities today. The council culture, the uh, illiberalism of, mm-hmm. of uh, the institutions themselves, you were secretary uh, when this kind of took hold and became um, much more relevant all across the uh, all across the country. How do we deal with wokeness? How do we how do we 
make sure that our universities are places where um, there's inquiry, where your views are challenged, where you learn rather than be indoctrinated. Well, arguably, much of this starts in uh, the K-12 years, where students today, for you know, by and large, are not learning how to really debate ideas and to analyze concepts, and uh, and are going into higher ed institutions um, very malleable, and uh, and and then getting pushed by a far left leaning uh, faculty and bent on so many college campuses. Uh, we were very clear to. Um, go and push back on those instances where the, the First Amendment, uh, the, the opportunity to speak freely about lots of different things, was being abridged. And we made sure that we would highlight uh, those, uh, those incidents wherever we could. Um, this has got to be something that collectively we, we say, enough, um, we, have got to, we have got to change direction and ensure that, first of all, uh, students arrive at college prepared for uh, the experience of college. And I would, you know, again, argue far too many of them are not prepared to do, first of all, the work of, of higher education, and secondly, contend with a lot of different ideas. Um, education is for uh, honing your, your core philosophies and exchanging ideas and debating, uh, you know, debating the merit of, of different uh, issues. And, um, and I think that uh, the woke ten, uh, trends have, uh, have certainly now um, gotten the, the attention being paid to them um, is, is, uh, is good because I think uh, common sense people are going to start to push back and say, uh, we don't, you know, we're not going to sign up for this and be part of this any longer. And I th- that, that has to extend to corporate America as well. Absolutely. So um, you're, you're actively uh, re-engaged in ph- philanthropic endeavors. Um, what's the role of, of, uh, of philanthropists in this, uh, in this case? I mean, a lot of these universities receive hundreds of millions of dollars from wealthy donors that love their universities, but um, is, there a, is there a role for them to play to be able to kind of accelerate the, the, uh, the purging of wokeness? Well, I think a lot of philanthropists who for whom this issue is uh, very important and who are paying attention are actually uh, either you know, pausing or, or withdrawing their support for these institutions that are not standing up and saying, you know, we, we actually support and protect the free and open exchange of ideas on our campus. And, uh, I, and I think that this is not, uh, you know, a light switch moment, it's more of a rheostat or a dimmer moment where I think we're going to see more pressure put on institutions if they do not uh, uh, readjust and, and, uh, and take a, a different tact in this, uh, in this whole um, battle and issue. So there's a growing awareness in our country that um, a four-year degree uh, still has value, but it's not the only path for people to, to live purposeful lives and to, to rise up. Um, talk to me about uh, the career pathway movement. Um, is there a role for Washington, apprenticeships? Uh, how do we accelerate um, a logical trend to, to uh, give different paths for the, you know, the great diversity of, the, of young people in our country? Well, this is something that um, our administration really put a focus on in an effort to help provide new uh, vehicles and, uh, and support for 
the industry recognized apprenticeship program, which had uh, has great promise for um, alternate career pathways beyond high school, uh, was just in the in the early stages of being implemented in um, in you know partnership with private enterprise and um, you know many companies who on their own are actually addressing these issues and uh, providing their own solutions. But the IRAP actually was going to help provide more uh, robust and integrated opportunities. And predictably, the Biden administration canceled the program almost immediately. Uh, that should be reinstated and, and expanded upon. And, um, and in, you know, in concert with that, uh, there needs to be more, um, I think, more research, not research, there's plenty of research done, but there has to be more report on uh, what the, you know, the, 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 the four-year institutions that students are uh, graduating from today with presumably not insignificant student debt. Um, we added information to the college scorecard that will help provide uh, data, will help provide meaningful data for students to look at uh, down to the field of study in, at each institution to see, importantly, what you will make, what you will earn after you graduate from that particular program. Previously, it was reported as an average by institution, which, of course, masks very significantly the highest and lowest end of the spectrum. And so uh, for many of these uh, graduate or undergraduate degrees, there are there is not a payoff. There is you you look at it and, and you look at the cost uh, versus what you're likely to earn in years one, two, three, and four, and I hope that will help uh, students become more discerning about the directions they take, and to evaluate. You know, do I go to a four-year institution and take this uh, this area of study? And look forward to earning this, or is another career pathway really something I, I should look at more closely? So, um, with the few minutes we have left, I, I, I thought it'd be appropriate to talk about January sixth. You were in D.C. Yeah. Can you talk about um, your experiences on that day and um, lessons learned on a really uh, tragic day? I think in American history. Well, I, I was. I was in my office that morning and, and then was urged to go to my home um, because there was rumors, there were rumors of, uh, of unrest. And um, the, more I, the more I saw and the more I thought about what children were seeing and viewing that day, the more um, upset I became. Uh, you know, the president could have and should have done more to stop what was happening, to call people back. And when that didn't happen, um, it really was a bridge too far for me. And um, as you know, I, I submitted my letter of resignation the next day. Um, I had come to Washington to serve students and um, to serve the American people. And um, it was an honor to have that opportunity from President Trump. But I, I had... I had been frustrated after the end of or after the um, election that we had a window of time where we could have conceivably uh, gotten the Education Freedom Scholarship tax credit into the second COVID relief bill. And um, but there was so much, uh, you know, 
chaos and uh, not focus within uh, the White House itself around what some of the possibilities were. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was frustrating. I, I, I got to a point, at, you know, we knew we had done everything we could for and on behalf of students. So, um, you know, January 6th was, uh, was kind of that, the, the lack of action there really kind of sealed things for me. Well, I know you love the Constitution, and um, I think it's your prayer and hope that uh, high school students particularly, but across the country, that we reconnect with our heritage, with the, the you know, that we understand our history and respect the institutions that um, have created the greatest country on the face of the earth. I, 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 that's one thing. That I'm, I'm very optimistic about a lot of things, but I, I worry about... Um, the disunity that exists because we don't um, appreciate our common heritage. Well, um, that's another very good argument for why we need to ensure that all students have uh, an understanding of the founding of our country, the, the founding documents, the uh, um, you know the the history that we have uh, continued to build upon, and um, the Constitution anchors that all. So, Betsy, thank you so much. Uh, this is a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. I hope people will, um, will uh, pick it up and, and read it. Before I let you go, can you tell me what book you're reading right now? Um, right now I am reading a book called Under Money. Under Money. I think Under I read Money. it. Yes. It's, a, it's, a, it's fiction, but kind of not. It's kind, yeah, it's fiction, but kind of <laughs> not. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You, you, you served with distinction and honor, uh, and uh, I admire you so much for all that you've done. Well, thank you so much, Jeb. It's great to, great to talk with you, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Hope so. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.